This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 37, recorded on January 24th, 2014. I'm your host, Tim Kreit from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here along with my co-host, Robin Dennis. Welcome, Robin. Hi, Tim. It's great to be here today. Good to have you back. And we also have a special guest with us, Dr. Pat Brown. Welcome, Pat. Hey, Tim. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here in our studio. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you visiting today. And uh, Dr. Brown just gave a nice presentation to our group here about his work in, in leukemia, and that's going to be the topic of our discussion today. So if you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you're listening to it a long time from now, don't hesitate to email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. O-R-G, we'll be happy to read your emails and discuss any any of them on a future episode. Uh, we actually got an email recently, but I've been waiting to for the right moment to bring it up for discussion, uh, so you'll have to stay tuned to another episode for that. Why don't you start off, yeah. Uh, Robin? With Yeah, I was wondering, I mean, Pat, we like to kind of get an idea of people's backgrounds and, you know, where they came from and, you know, their education and their training and their interests first to kind of learn a little bit more about you, so if you could just kind of tell us about yourself. Uh, so I started by going to, uh, to college at, at West Point and then, um, studied engineering and went into the Army as, in the Corps of Engineers and decided to get out of the Army about, about five years later and, and looked into the possibility of going to medical school. So I did that. I ended up, uh, going to the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston and, um, left there to go to Johns Hopkins once I graduated from medical school to do uh, my residency in general pediatrics and ended up staying on as a uh, fellow and now as an attending and I've been at Hopkins for 15 years now. So what, what initially got you interested in studying leukemia? Um, I think there are two, two things that really got me most interested. I think in my, um, you know, preclinical medical school classes, I was always fascinated by the pathophysiology of, of cancer in general and leukemia specifically, you know, it was the, the BCR, the story of, of kind of going from the discovery of trans, of chromosomal translocations by, by Janet Rowley and then moving on to BCR able, understanding the BCR able fusions and then, and then understanding, you know, the, the biology of that abnormality. It, it just was a fascinating story. And leukemia has really seemed to be at the forefront of understanding the molecular basis of cancer. And so that's, I think, what drew me to it from an intellectual standpoint. And then, you know, really it came together when that first time you do a rotation on a pediatric oncology ward and you meet that first patient. For me, there was just a gut feeling that it was, uh, you know, the right combination of what I enjoyed doing clinically and what I enjoyed uh, learning about um, uh, from an intellectual standpoint. Did your training in West Point help you in any fashion in all this? And well, of, I, it certainly helped me uh, get through it all. Certainly helped me uh, deal with the rigors of medical school. I mean, I I wasn't too phased by staying up late at night or you know work, working hard. And I th- I do think that having some background in kind of the real world, if you will, was helpful in in medical school in terms of relating to patients and their their problems and things. So, yeah, I mean, I I credit a lot of 
you know, I was pretty much a, uh, your basic teenager when I showed up there and, you know, so it taught me how to, you know, make my bed and balance my checkbook. You gave a really nice talk today um, about infant ALL and MLL rearrangement and, and I, and I really enjoyed the part about kind of the, the new modern approach to clinical trials because mm-hmm. I think that's something that's really important for people to look at now that novel agents are coming in the forefront. So can you just uh, give the listeners a little bit more detail about sort of what your focus is in your lab and, mm-hmm. and what your goals are, you know, in, in the lab work that you do now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I started as um, a second year fellow in Don Small's lab, and I had literally never touched a pipette before. You know, I had never done any kind of laboratory research whatsoever. But what, what attracted me to work with Don was he was, you know, really at the forefront of developing a new kind of therapy for cancer, basically trying to, to take advantage of what was being learned about the molecular basis, in his case, uh, in, in AML, and trying to take advantage of that to develop therapies that were really targeting what was specifically wrong with the cancer cell. And that made sense to me. Even as someone who had never been in the lab, that was a language I could understand. You know, I'd seen what happens when kids are treated with chemotherapy, all the, you know, side effects that they have to deal with. And I had learned about things like the BCR-ABLE fusion and some of the molecular abnormalities that underlie leukemia. And so having anything to do with that, with the translation of what was being learned about the molecular basis of cancer and improving on treatment was very motivating for me. And so I really, you know, Don was brave enough to take me into his lab as someone who had really no no research experience at all. And I've really focused my work then and since then on that translational boundary between clinical research and laboratory research. And so what what we specialize in mostly in our lab, I think, is taking samples from patients on clinical trials and trying to understand why they are or are not responding to targeted agents the way we had hypothesized they would, but then also to do some of the preclinical work to justify the next generation of of clinical trials of targeted agents. And, you know, it's been it's been um very gratifying in a lot of ways. It's also incredibly challenging work and, and to see how long it takes to translate, you know, very clear ideas into therapies that actually help individual patients. The, the speed with which that's happening is, I think, one of the greatest challenges that we face because it's not fast. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I think that's really going to be, you know, something that needs to be addressed over the, over the coming years so and decades. Drug development isn't fast, but neither is career development. And yeah. You sound like a poster child for someone who has, um, not had previously research experience yet, come into a fellowship, kind of got the bug. And yeah. then been able to make it. And, and I think a lot of fellows that come in without research experience are worried about that. And frankly, a lot of administrators are worried about yeah. somebody like that making it on their own. So can you speak a little bit just to, uh, how long it took, how much ever it took in terms of staying under your mentor's wing versus breaking out from wow. under your mentor's wing? And Absolutely. That. I mean, this is something that, uh, is near and dear to my heart because, you know, like I said, Don was a very, is, continues to be an extremely accomplished scientist and for him to take a chance on somebody who, you know, I I think he knew that I was bright and that I'd work hard, but everybody's bright and work hard and, you know, but he, you know, took a, took a chance on me. So that's number one is to have a mentor who's willing to invest in you and, and have faith that you can do it even if you haven't had a lot of research experience. 
um, you know, the most important conversation I had, you know, I was like that fellow who, you know, I was making that transition from first to second year. And we had a, a track in our fellowship program where you could just take classes and learn how to do clinical research. There was like a master's in clinical training. And I was, I said, well, there's something I can do. You know, I feel I, I kind of am comfortable with clinical medicine. There's something I can do. And it seemed like the less risky option to me. And I remember talking to my dad, who's an accountant, and the one piece of good advice he gave me was, you're telling me you have the opportunity to go into a laboratory environment, which you've never been in, and you have an opportunity to learn something completely new at, at the time I was, you know, 33, 34 years old. He said, you should be jumping up and down for that opportunity, not looking at that as a problem. Yeah, I, I realized he was right. You know, like I, I had an opportunity to throw myself into something completely new. And yes, it was very daunting to, you know, to go into a laboratory environment for the first time. But with Don's support and also the support of Mark Levis, who was a couple of years ahead of me in Don's lab as an adult fellow, those two guys really, you know, made it, made it seem possible for me. And it took six months before I felt like I could walk into the laboratory and set anything up on my own without being completely dependent on someone else. When did you say, hey, I want to do this for a living, this lab? You know, I still ask myself that every day, to be honest with you. You know, it's, it's never, it's never completely mm -hmm. clear. You know, I always doubt every day whether, whether I'm, you know, good enough, smart enough, doggone it. You know, the, the, I, it, you're constantly questioning whether it's, whether you've made the right decision, but I was committed to it, um, within six months to a year in the lab. I said, you know, I need to, to give this everything I have and see how far it goes. And it's still going. And I don't know if it's going to go much longer, but I'm sure enjoying it while it does. And, you know, to have the opportunity to even contribute in a small way to, having new things happening that, that are affecting individual people and patients, that to me is just a, a something that I will work as hard as I can to stay involved in. And hopefully it'll keep working. <laughs> Back to the drug development issue in terms of timing, it, you really told a timeline today about how long things mm -hmm. took. You look at it in a lab and you get to the point where you launch a clinical trial and yet you know, we're, what's eight, nine years later, yep. uh, and it's not quite done yet. Uh, That's right. And then the results won't be in. So, you know, one paper for a <laughs> clinical trial in a 10-year project. Yeah. Uh, how does that jive with our ability to sort of prove to uh, administrators, et cetera, that we're worth it? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with is the thing that we're passionate about uh, the things that we're, we're, that we're most passionate about, which is changing for the better the outcomes for patients, uh, are not necessarily the things that are, uh, are going to be the most efficient to get the things on your CV that make, you know, th that make promotions happen, et cetera. And so, and also aren't necessarily the things that are going to bring dollars into your institution in a short, in the short term. So I think we just really as a field have to decide whether we're willing to invest in the painstaking uh, efforts it requires to change, to take things that are discovered in the laboratory and translate them into better outcomes for patients. I'm fortunate that I've got a lot of people working in the lab that are doing great work and we can, you know, publish that work. We, you know, there, there are lots of other things that you can do, but it's not, it's not an easy process and it's certainly not an easy career path, mm -hmm. but it's the only career path that I know of that that directly impacts patients and patient care outcomes. 
So I, although you just spent an hour telling us, can you condense that to just a little summary of your re, of the clinical trial you're finishing up running and what the basis of that was and what you're hoping to see? Sure. So we're um, the clinical trial that that I discussed today was um, a trial of a combination of chemotherapy and a new agent, um, a, a FLT3 inhibitor for infant ALL. And basically, it was what uh, is FLT3? Yeah. What so FLT3 is a is a tyrosine kinase. It's a gene that is expressed in blood cells, and the normal function of it is to control proliferation of normal and development of normal blood cells. It turns out that that FLT3 is expressed and is mutated in a large proportion of human leukemias. So it's kind of similar to other other uh, genes that are involved in leukemia that they have an important normal function in blood stem cells, and when they get mutated or overexpressed, they are important in driving leukemia. So it's basically the you know th these are transforming genes that take normal blood cells and make them into nasty leukemia cells. So FLT3 is one of those, and there are small molecules that can inhibit the function of FLT3, and we had the work that I'd done in, in Don's lab had been to see whether FLT3 inhibitors could potentially be effective if there was preclinical evidence that they could potentially be effective for certain types of childhood leukemia. And infants with ALL was one subset that appeared to have promise in terms of FLT3 inhibition being effective. And it was because the FLT3 receptor is markedly overexpressed in these cells compared to other types of ALL. And the other driving force was that infants with ALL have an extremely poor outcome with standard chemotherapy. So it's the one subset of ALL, it's one of the few subsets of ALL where the outcomes really are poor um, with standard therapy and novel therapies are desperately needed. So how many, how many kids that are, how many infants in this country a year get this? So there's about 160 the estimates are about 160 infants per year diagnosed with acute leukemia, and about 90 of them have ALL. About 70 have AML. Um, so it's you know it's not exactly a public health scourge. Fortunately, those numbers are small, but any one yep. is uh, is awful. And and the outcomes are really poor. And you know, and I think where infant the significance of infant leukemia is much greater than than its its incidence or its prevalence would suggest is is because it's such a uh, it's a biologically driven form of leukemia that we have learned a lot about the molecular basis and may serve as a, uh, a proof of principle about how you take uh, discoveries about the molecular basis of leukemia and translate them to, into better therapies. Um, you know, the challenge, one of the challenges we have is because it is such a rare disease, it takes a long time to develop, um, to, to enroll enough patients to be able to test the effectiveness of therapies. And so one of the things we're doing as we move forward is collaborating globally with uh, there are two other major cooperative groups that have infant leukemia uh, infrastructure in place. One is the Interfont group in Europe, and the other is uh, the Japanese Pediatric Leukemia Group um, based out of Japan. And uh, we're hoping to do a joint trial with all of them for uh, for the next uh, trial of infant leukemia. Yeah, you mentioned that trial in your talk, and I thought the most innovative piece of that that fascinated me was your building of the relapse study. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, that you know that really struck me um, pretty early on in our ongoing study. I you know I, I began to learn um, something I didn't want to know, which is you know I began to be contacted as the study chair when patients were relapsing, and what I quickly realized was that when infants relapse they relapse in a very aggressive 
pattern where they're extremely resistant to chemotherapy and they there's a very narrow window where you can enroll you, you could potentially enroll them on clinical trials of novel agents at the in the relapse setting and on top of that you most clinical trials exclude patients under a certain age and so many infants aren't even eligible for phase 1 clinical trials that are available and so it seemed natural to me and i kind of you know chided myself for not having thought about this when we were developing the study is why not build into our upfront trials particularly our upfront trials of small subsets like like infant leukemia uh phase 1 or an early evaluation of an, of novel agents in that initial relapse setting so that patients can continue on protocol and receive their initial therapy for their relapse as part of the clinical trial where appropriate you know and and infants do do so poorly with chemotherapy at the time of relapse that um, you know, it really seems to make sense there. And so that's something that, that we're hoping we can build into it. You know, it's, it's a huge challenge because you have to have in the protocol already the information about the novel agent. And, you know, having that really does speak to how we need to develop more flexible uh, drug development pathways and more flexible clinical trial designs so that we can, you know, be nimble as new agents yeah, become available. Yeah, that's that I was going to raise is the point uh, that's worrisome or of concern because these trials may take five years, so what's going to be hot in three years? What would you want to try at that point? And mm -hmm. Could you just put in a whole new amendment, or do you need to build those things in now as options, or yeah. how would you approach that? You know, I think that what we what we are planning on doing is, you know, at the time that you have to put words to paper in a final protocol document, you take the best, what you know as the best available option at that point. But then what we're working on is having a more streamlined amendment process where it doesn't take, you know, nine months. If a, if a new agent becomes available and it's a higher priority, then we, we should be able to more efficiently move that into a clinical trial protocol for that, for that initial salvage uh, block. And so that's the hope is that we can write into the protocol a process of amendment that, that will shorten the timelines and make it a little bit more seamless in terms of uh, getting those new, new agents available. So presumably, though, the number of patients on a study like this that relapse would be um, more than you'll, you'll have higher numbers than what you usually require for any given phase one. That's, that's right. And so you're going to have to sort of have this whole lineup of things ready to go, I would think. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's the idea is to have at least one uh, you know, as many as we, as we have available that we think there's adequate rationale for, have those written into the initial protocol, but then be, you know, willing to, to update it as time goes on. You know, the other thing is that not all agents are available all over the world. And so there are, um, challenges in an international study. It may be that, you know, we may have to have a slightly different initial approach to relapse package available in Europe than in the United right. States, for example, because of regulatory reasons. So those are all major challenges. And, you know, but I think the, I, I, I find the idea so compelling that hopefully those challenges can yeah. be overcome. It might be a paradigm for other kinds of yeah. studies outside of the infant range. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. I think it's something that uh, could potentially be applied, you know, pH positive ALLs and other leukemia, but, you know, really any, any disease with a very high relapse rate where standard therapies generally fail patients in the relapse setting. You know, virtually, you know, many sarcomas are like that. And particularly diseases like sarcomas where 
the molecular basis of the disease is being elucidated in a pretty rapid fashion, I would think that it, it would be very amenable to that sort of thing. Neuroblastoma is another example where that might be effective. I was struck by um, when you talked about the drug company and the startnib and mm. sort of, I mean... <laughs> Tell the audience you... what happened. Oh, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so in the middle of your trial, you described about how, well, kind of near the end of the trial, how there was some potentially negative information that came out. Oh, it's definitely negative, yeah. In the publications about um, your novel agent being used, and um, it kind of threatened the your study. Um, That's exactly so, right. So yeah. how do you kind of see the future of that with the way drug companies are and sort of, you know, what, what happens in the middle of suddenly they completely withdraw the drug the rug off, out from the, off the market? Yeah, you know, well, <laughs> I will tell you that in this particular case, we were extremely fortunate that the company – the company that we're talking about that was uh, manufacturing Lestortinib, their pivotal trial in adult AML was negative. But they were they were they recognized that the reason that it was negative was probably because of pharmacologic limitations of how the drug was used in that population. And that didn't that really did not appear to apply because we had done the work in the laboratory to show that we were getting levels of inhibition in the infants that they were not seeing in adults. Mm-hmm. They they were able to recognize with our uh, with our help that didn't necessarily translate into in, into a negative result in our, in in our study, and they were willing to live up to their commitment to provide drug for the duration of the trial. And oh. that is you know so I I have nothing but positive things to say about that interaction. Now it does bring up the the greater question though if you know if we're going to be dependent upon commercial. And we are going to be dependent in many cases on commercial entities to provide drugs for our clinical trials. Then we need to be very, uh, very cognizant of the fact that, you know, their, what is driving them is very different than what's driving us and that we have to, to recognize that and have contingency plans in place. Mm-hmm. But it's not a problem that's going to be solved anytime real soon. Um, and it really does require, you know, fruitful collaboration rather than you know, any kind of antagonistic uh, uh, relationship. But in your particular case, they've provided the drug, you'll finish the trial, you'll get the results, and let's say it looks good. Mm-hmm. Will that revive the drug, or are you going to have to rely on other drug companies and their inhibitors? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think it will revive this drug, and and frankly, I don't know that we want it mm-hmm. to because, you know, this was this was in the first generation of FLT3 inhibitors, and I, we felt like we had done enough work. What What I felt confident in, when we decided to move forward with this drug, despite the fact that the the commercial development of the drug looked like it was going to to go away, was that I felt like we were getting good enough inhibition of FLT3 that we were going to be able to test the proof of principle of whether FLT3 inhibition helped these kids or not. But with the recognition that if it did help, that we would probably move, we were probably required to and even want to move on to some of the next generation FLT3 inhibitors that have overcome a lot of the pharmacologic problems that, that have been seen with this drug in adults. We were fortunate those pharmacologic problems were less um, challenging in infants just because of the way they handle the drugs um, differently. But, um, but we'll be perfectly happy to move on to, to other agents um, uh, if the proof of principle turns out to have been effective. Did it just so happen that Lestartan was already made in the liquid preparation? Or Because yes. I know 
even with some of the studies that I'm starting to get involved in, there's a lot of issues with the smaller kids because almost all of those agents are in capsular form. Do you have a problem because you're dealing with such a baby population? Yeah, it's always a, that's always a special yeah. challenge in our population. Yeah. Um, you know, we we were fortunate that the drug was ma- is manufactured was manufactured for adults in a liquid mm-hmm. formulation, so it's more of a problem for them than for us, believe it or not. <laughs> You know, because the stuff, tough, mm-hmm. the stuff tastes nasty and can only be really diluted in like mm-hmm. acidic juices and stuff like that. And I've, uh, it's, it's, it's not a pleasant experience. But, with, but the babies handle a lot better. They're mm-hmm. a little bit better about taking small amounts of, uh, of liquid that tastes bad. Um, but you're, you bring up a good point. As we, as we move on to the next generation of, of infant studies, we're facing that. For example, there's one drug that we're looking at developing that only comes in tablet form. And, you know, we, we really need to partner with pharmaceutical companies to try to figure out how to develop a formulation. You know, it's not necessarily in their be- best interest to, to spend the resources required to come up with a liquid formulation for a drug that's, you know, that commercially is not going to, infant leukemia is not going to make a big impact, even if it's helpful, right? But, uh, you know, again, if, I think if you build, you know, if you build good relationships and people understand the, the, the scientific basis of it, then, 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 then those resources can be brought to bear, uh, for those things. But there are absolutely special challenges associated with, with coming up with the right formulation. Well, it's great to see all the progress you've made and being able to translate your work from the lab to the clinic and, uh, clearly successful in that, regardless of what the trial shows. <laughs> you know, just getting through that process is a huge accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll come so back at show number 57. And Sounds good. Was- um, any, any other final questions or? or comments that mm-hmm. either of you guys want to make? Not for me. I really enjoyed the presentation and talk. It's very enlightening, for especially for someone early on in their career, just sort of learning how to navigate this clinical trial arena. So thanks. Yep. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, <laughs> yeah. a great pleasure being here. Thank thanks. you. Great. Thanks for sharing your story. So anybody have uh, listening to this, again, have an email, please email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org for your questions. You can follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to our sound engineers, Victor Aguilar and Jeff Thurston, as well as to the Solving Kids Cancer uh, team. Uh, Solving Kids Cancer is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, our director of communications. And also, as always, thanks to Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.